Good morning, First Baptist. Well, if you've been watching the news, you know that it's been, uh, it's been quite a week uh, in the wake of two shootings, the one in El Paso and the one in Ohio. Uh, there's been a lot of new debate. And as sick as we are of hearing about these mass shootings, I don't remain terribly optimistic that the politicians are going to be able to make this problem go away. Now, they're talking about it. They're, they're coming out. Uh, they're, they're talking about new bills and new laws that are going to fix the problem. But I just don't think that's going to be the case. Or maybe you've been following this Jeffrey Epstein case. Uh, if you're not aware of what's going on there, it's, he's a, a billionaire who lived in New York. He was an investor. And it came out that he had a whole ring of young girls that he was trafficking. And I'm just waiting to see how many people are going to come out as having been affiliated with this man. He was found dead in a jail cell yesterday. Appears to be suicide, but frankly, it's really hard to say. You see, I don't believe we can just legislate away sin. As much as we would like to, as much as I wish there was some law out there that could just make it go away, I don't see the problem of sin going away like that. And there's a danger, I believe, that can happen among Christians as we are exposed to more and more of these, these big cultural events that are so horrific. And the danger for us is that we start to compare our own sins to these major events that are going on in the world. I mean, when I start to think about the things I do from day to day, and then I think about things like mass shootings and, and these trafficking, the, tra the trafficking of these young women, I think, well, maybe I'm not so bad after all. Um, I'm not part of any kind of LGBT movement or anything like that. I mean, in light of those big cultural norms, we're doing okay, aren't we? Or are we? There was a book that came out a few years ago uh, called Respectable Sins. And the author of that book, a man named Jerry Bridges, he wrote this in the foreword. He said, the motivation for this book stems from a growing conviction that those of us whom I call conservative evangelicals may have become so preoccupied with some of the major sins of society around us that we have lost sight of the need to deal with our own more refined or subtle sins. Respectable, refined, subtle, right? Things like lying and coveting, worry, envy, pride. By the way, all of which I find myself guilty of. And if it's true that God hates sin, then how do I avoid these so-called respectable sins? That's going to be our subject today. And we're going to step back into the book of Judges. Today we'll be in Judges chapter 8. And we're going to cover a big swath of Scripture. We'll go from chapter 8, 33 to uh, chapter 10, verse 5. So we'll be reading parts of this. I'll be summarizing portions of it. But I want to start out there in, uh, I'm sorry, uh, 8, 33 to 9, 6. That's where I'll start out reading this morning. If you would... Please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. 
Judges 8, 33 to 9, 6. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Berith their god. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jer Jerobel, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. Now Abimelech, the son of Jerobel, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them, and to the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jerobel rule over you, or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of baal Berith, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jerobel, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerobel, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. You may be seated. We're continuing this saga in the book of Judges. And one of these repeated themes that we've been hearing is people were doing what's right in their own eyes, and we're seeing it again and again and again. And for the most part, there was no king in Israel. However, as you saw on the screen, or in your Bibles, what I just read, they are trying awful hard to get a king in Israel, even taking matters now into their own hands. The people should be conquesting the Canaanites. That should be their task. But they're getting so caught up in the society and the culture around them that they're having a real hard time doing what it was God said that they should be doing. So again, we're going to go through this passage that we, we just read today. We're going to be looking at some more verses on top of that. The Israelites are becoming more and more like the people they're supposed to be conquering. Last week we saw it get so bad that they had fashioned a God of their own and started to worship it. And this morning we're going to take a look at this new guy on the scene, this guy Abimelech. And we're going to look at the Israelite response to him. So we'll look at this in four ways. First, we'll talk about the ungodly behavior going on among these Israelites, those living in Shechem. Then we'll talk about this ungodly leader, Abimelech. And then we'll look at God's unwavering justice that comes into play in light of everything that's going on. And we'll ask ourselves, as we see how much God hates sin in this passage, is how do I avoid these respectable sins? And we'll talk about the helpful six the helpful six when we get to that part. So let's step into this passage now. And first of all, we're going to see the behavior of these Israelites. And we, we read about it there at the end of chapter 8. And if you look carefully at verses 33 through 35, the Israelites show their amnesia, their inability to remember. And we get to verse 34, and it says, And the people of Israel 
did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon. That word Jeroboam, if you recall, means one who contends with Baal. Gideon kind of contended with Baal, then he kind of didn't. And the people were lost again in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. So the people, unfortunately, have fallen back into this pattern. And I can't help but connect what's going on here back to verse 27. Speaking of the gold that Gideon had collected from all the men that he'd conquered, it says this, that he used all that to make an ephod, which he put in his hometown of Ophrah. All the Israelites prostituted themselves to it by worshiping it there. It became a snare to Gideon and his family. They've turned their back on God once again, and they're about to get this leader that they deserve guy by the name of Abimelech and as I go through this I can't help but wonder if Gideon had known if he had known what was going to happen and who knows why he made this ephod it was that piece that the high priest wore uh, whenever he was going into the temple to to uh, to come before the Lord to offer sacrifice for the uh, on behalf of the Israelites was he trying to set up another temple I, the, the scriptures really offer no reason why he did this but the people worshiped this ephod i can't help but wonder if he'd known what the outcome was going to be would he still have done it because when god's people start living like unbelievers it causes this ripple effect and our sins affect all those people that are around us oftentimes the people we love the most and then there's big cultural norms that people enjoyed for a while that start to change. We've seen that here in the United States. I'll, I'll never proclaim that the United States is a Christian nation. You'll never hear me say that. Frankly, I'm not even sure exactly what that means. But you have seen dramatic change, especially those of you who grew up through the 60s. Um, if you grew up in the 60s, you became familiar with the sexual revolution that ensued. And, and a lot went on during that time. As a matter of fact, there was a blog post that was written by this journal, uh, journalist, Tim Stafford. And he wrote this very uh, short but profound appraisal of the sexual revolution of the 60s. He calls it the revolution that kept rolling and is rolling still. And he, he's not an alarmist, but he wrote a very good synopsis of what it has done and is doing to us currently. He said this. He said, I sometimes used to swing the pendulum. I sometimes used to think the pendulum would swing back. But we've lived with some pretty horrendous consequences of the sexual revolution. Millions dead of AIDS, a fatherless generation, and there's not the slightest sign of retreat. He said, what I foresee is more. Whatever structures remain are on shaky ground. The chief remaining taboos, rape, sexual harassment, child abuse, child pornography, man-boy relations have in common that there is a youthful or non-consenting victim. Maybe that reservation will hold. We'll see. You see, there was a big up, upshift, if you want to call it, during that time in our history and, and, and the decisions that were made in that time are impacting us still and impacting our, our culture and our nation still. 
I'll never forget a friend of mine, uh, actually his, his, his wife, lived, they lived across the hall from us when we were in seminary. And one time his wife shared with, with the three of us, her husband and, and my wife and I, that she was really struggling. And she said she didn't know why. So she started going to a counselor and started asking questions. Look, I'm feeling a lot of emotional he heaviness here, and I really don't understand why that is. She started talking to her counselor, and soon enough, she found out that her dad, who lived a thousand miles away, was having an affair. You see, before she ever knew that, she was feeling the subtle differences in the relationship that she had with her dad. The sin that he was committing a thousand miles away that she didn't even know about was impacting her and her life down in Dallas, Texas. You see, this is what sin does. Even the most subtle of sins that we're committing are impacting those around us that we love. I know I'm passing things on to Landry. I don't want to. But see, he's already not picking up after himself. And I know I'm having a negative effect there. So, we see this ungodly behavior in these Israelites. And you can only imagine what kind of a leader they're going to choose in this place that they're in. And this is where the son of Gideon comes on the scene. A man we heard about last week named Abimelech, he's a wicked man. And we see the establishment of his rule at the beginning of chapter 9. And it was in those verses that you heard me read right there at the beginning. And the first four verses imply that Abimelech's mother was a Canaanite. The way he's talking about her and her family is sort of being separate from Israel. So Gideon had taken on this Canaanite concubine, had this son, Abimelech, and uh, we see the pains of, of Gideon's mistake. And Abimelech goes to his mother's family, and he rallies these people to his side, and, and the leaders of Shechem. And then they give him silver out of the temple of Baal that he goes and hires what are described as lawless and, and dangerous men to aid him. And what's this new leader going to be like? See, Israel at this point no longer has a judge. And you don't see God mentioned anywhere in here. They've got this anti-judge, this guy by the name of Abimelech, and he sees, he's got this cruel thirst for power. So he and his men proceed to go and do this grisly work of slaughtering all of his half-brothers. You saw it in verse, uh, verse 5. It says he went to his father's house at Ophrah, and killed his brothers, the sons of Jerobel, that is Gideon, 70 men. And how does he do it? He says he does it on a single stone. Now, this is how you would have sacrificed animals. So they, they brought these half-brothers of his one by one and killed them on this one stone in front of everybody. You can imagine what that scene would have looked like. There was one man he didn't get to a guy by the name of Jotham. And it's ironic that almost the same number of men that Gideon kill, killed in Succoth, uh, those were his fellow Israelites, were about the same number of men that Abimelech kills now. And after the killing, we get to verse 6. 
And it says, And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. So by whatever democratic means they used, they've made this guy their king. Nowhere again is God mentioned. Then in verses 7 through 21, it says, This son of Gideon that survived, Jotham, he pronounces a curse on Abimelech, and he does it in the form of a parable. And he's speaking to the men of Shechem and Beth Milo, who had chosen Abimelech to be their king. And because they'd done this, because they'd come and slaughtered all these men, and they treated the family of Gideon so poorly, we get this verse, uh, this, this curse, rather, of verse 20, where Jotham states, May fire blaze from Abimelech and consume the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo. May fire also blaze from the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo and consume Abimelech. So he pronounces this curse that these two are going to consume one another. The men consume Abimelech, and likewise Abimelech will consume the men. And you'll see that that's exactly what's going to happen. You see, when someone has this unquenchable thirst for power, and when they're willing to do anything to keep that power, you can bet that horrible things are going to ensue. You see that among many leaders in the world today. And that's a danger for all of us, by the way. There was an article that came out in Christianity Today called The Enemy Within. And it discusses the seriousness with which our country's founders took in preventing a tyrant from gaining control of the United States. And I found this phrase very interesting, a portion of this article. It said, Our nation and its pursuit of liberty and justice for all has always had enemies, more today than ever. But in earlier times, our nation's leaders recognized that the most dangerous enemy came from within. Not traitors, anarchists, or terrorists, but the very people and government committed to preserving freedom. They knew that the ultimate source of injustice and tyranny was not bad law, but bad people. People like you and me, who have an insatiable thirst for power, privilege, and ease and who tend to pursue self-interest at the expense of others' fortunes and even lives, if necessary. You see, those writers of the Constitution, they had seen tyranny. They knew what it was like. It's what these Israelites have brought upon themselves now. You see, a good Christian may not always look like a good politician because Above pursuing their own re-election, they are pursuing the glory of God. You see, it's the same way with Christian businessmen. You know, a, a Christian businessman may not look to the world like a great businessman because there's something higher than the bottom line, than the profit. It's how you're also treating your employees, how you're treating your customers, even if that costs. Because the ways of Christians don't look like the ways of the world. Pastors always have to be holding churches loosely. God, let your will be done and not our own. So we always have to guard against this thirst for power and control. So Israel, they have this ungodly leader. And then the question is, well, what, what's God going to do about this? How long is he going to allow this to continue? And then we pick it up in verse 22 of chapter 9. Because he is going to do something about it. 
<clears throat> Abimelech commanded Israel for three years. God sent a spirit to stir up hostility between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. He made the leaders of Shechem disloyal to Abimelech. He did this so the violent deaths of Jeroboam's 70 sons might be avenged, and Abimelech, their half-brother who murdered them, might have to pay for their spilled blood, along with the leaders of Shechem who helped him murder them. The leaders of Shechem rebelled against Abimelech by putting bandits in the hills who robbed everyone who traveled by on the road, but Abimelech found out about it. So this will be the beginning of the end for Abimelech and these Shechemites. And it says that God sent this evil spirit for the purpose of stirring up this hostility between Abimelech and his followers. Now it's worth mentioning here, and I hope you can see, that God controls all forces out there. Uh, as a matter of fact, if you read the book of Job, you'll see that Satan could do nothing to Job until God gave him permission to do so. And here he's using this demon to his end. He's using it to stir up this hostility. And uh, it says the men of Shechem began to rebel against Abimelech. And as you read down through chapter 9, you see they take up a new leader. They didn't like Abimelech anymore. They, they get this guy Gale in there. And soon what remaining men Abimelech has go to war with Gale and the men that he has. Eventually, Abimelech gains the upper hand, and he chases all the people of Shechem into a tower, all the men and all the women. And then you see what happens in chapter 9, verse 49. It says they put the branches against the stronghold and set fire to it. All the people of the tower of Shechem died, about a thousand men and women. A thousand men and women burned alive in this tower. This is what we've come to. Then he goes to another town. He does the same thing. He chases everyone into a tower. But this time the ending is different. And we pick it up in verse 52. It says, Abimelech came and attacked the tower. When he approached the entrance of the tower to set it on fire, a woman threw an, up, an upper millstone down on his head and shattered a skull. He quickly called to the young man who carried his weapons. Draw your sword and kill me so they will not say a woman killed him. So the young men stabbed him and he died. When the Israelites saw that Abimelech was dead, they went home. God repaid Abimelech for the evil he did to his father by murdering his 70 half-brothers. God also repaid the men of Shechem for their evil deeds. The curse spoken by Jotham, son of Jeroboam, fell on them. So it ends Abimelech. God didn't let him get away with it. You see, God is always going to bring the right punishment on evil. And week after week, we hear these stories from the book of Judges. The Israelites are doing okay, then they're not doing okay, then they're doing okay, then they're not doing okay. And I hope what you can see is that this is life under the law. And in all likelihood... If you and I were there, we would have been doing the same thing these Israelites were doing. We don't like to think that. When we hear that story about the millionaire who won the lottery, we always think, well, we won't go down the same path he did or she did. We don't think that we would do the same things that these Israelites did. But see, this is life trying to be lived out for God in the absence 
of the Holy Spirit. Before we pat ourselves too hard on the back, why don't we fall to our knees and thank God that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit who is enabling us to believe and keeping us saved. You see, that should be our response to this. The law that these Israelites were under shows us how badly we needed a Savior. And God does not tolerate sin forever. So what does this mean for us? Uh, um, you know, God clearly had a limit for the ungodliness that was going on at this time of Abimelech. The danger for us, and I, I mentioned this at the start of the sermon, is to start thinking that in light of all the sin that's going on in the world, the mass shootings, the child trafficking, that somehow our sins are minuscule. That's our danger. And we can inadvertently create a list of sins that we commit that are in some ways sort of like respectable. Well, I know so and so. They commit this same sin, and I don't think any less of them. They don't think any less of me, I don't think. I mean, we're all kind of okay, aren't we? Or are we? You do what I do, and it's no biggie. And in that book I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon called Respectable Sins, the author takes this aim with these sins that many Christians consciously or, or unconsciously consider acceptable behavior. And there's quite a list that he comes up with. He, in, in the book, he talks about ungodliness, anxiety, discontentment, unthankfulness, pride, selfishness, lack of self-control, impatience, judgmentalism, envy, gossip, malice, worldliness. Have I missed anybody yet? And in that same book, he outlines a number of directions in dealing with these kinds of sins, the ones that, to some degree, we all struggle with. And to some degree, we have floating around in our hearts these challenges, these sins. I'm not, not challenges, sins. Things that God finds despicable. So I want to talk now about this helpful six. Just some directions that we can get from the scriptures in dealing with these so-called respectable sins. And first of all, we apply the gospel. Number one, we apply the gospel. Uh, remember that Jesus Christ has already paid the penalty of our sins. And we're totally forgiven. And God's never going to hold our sins against us. We've got this wonderful verse in Colossians 2, 13 and 14. It says, God has forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. We receive this wonderful gift of salvation by faith. And if you've not done that, please meet me down at the front at the end of the sermon. I'd be happy to talk to you about how to receive this free gift of salvation. And see, not only that, but God has credited to our account the righteousness of Jesus Christ. See, when God looks down on us, he doesn't see all the wrong things we've done. He looks down on us and sees the righteousness of his own son. This is, this is the word we learned in seminary. This is imputed righteousness. Sometimes I call it turkey-based righteousness because it's, it's as though God extracted righteousness from Jesus Christ and he came over to us and he put it in us. The author of that same book says it this way. 
As we struggle to put to death our subtle sin, we must always keep in mind this twofold truth. Our sins are forgiven, and we are accepted as righteous by God because of both the sinless life and sin-bearing death of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is no greater motivation for dealing with sin in our lives than the realization of these two glorious truths of the gospel. So we've been made perfect in the eyes of God by trusting in the saving work of Jesus Christ. By the way, if you walk away here thinking to yourself, that's just too good to be true, then you get it. Because it does sound too good to be true. And if you don't get it, that's okay. God will bring it to you. Secondly, we depend on the Holy Spirit through prayer. We depend on the Holy Spirit through prayer. And this echoes Romans 8, 13. It says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you, by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We depend on the Holy Spirit to help us in this process of removing these respectable sins. And I always always like to think about the Holy Spirit being this physical trainer, that when we became a Christian, all of a sudden, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, he comes and he starts changing us. And he's like this physical trainer that's got 24-7, 365 access to you. And he does not stop working on you. And just like any good trainer, you come to them and you say, I want to lose 30 pounds. And they say, okay, you're going to lose 30 pounds. And we can do this the easy way or we can do this the hard way. The Holy Spirit is working in us and through us. And we show our dependence on God through prayer. Every day I hope you're praying. I just love some of the songs we were singing about prayer this morning. A dependence on God is shown by our willingness to pray. Asking God to show us our sins. Asking God to help us overcome our sins. So we depend on the Holy Spirit through prayer. And then third, do your part not to sin. Do your part not to sin. Work at it 100% knowing that God is working 100% in you. Yes. This is one of those tensions in Scripture where, yes, God is doing the work and we give him the credit. At the same time, I'm cooperating in the process. So you avoid places that are a source of temptation for you. You avoid looking at things that are a source of temptation. You do those things to do your part not to sin. Not because God's going to love us anymore, but because we love Him. And we do this in response to Him. So do your part not to sin. And I love that, I don't know who said this, but work as if it all depends on you, and yet trust as if you did not work at all. Fourth, identify what your particular sins are. Identify your sins. What are the major struggles you have? What are the the triggers? Ask God to reveal this to you. I know that if I get stressed, I tend to have a lack of self-control. And this comes through in the form of eating. I'm being very transparent with you all right now. For some reason I'm stressed, I find myself standing in front of the refrigerator as though the answer's in there somewhere. It's not. I've looked. I would have found it by now. Fifth, memorize scripture. Memorize scripture. I'm going to, 
I'm going to ask you to Google this. It's the top 20 verses everyone should know. If you Google that, it'll route you to McLean Bible Church. It's got a fantastic list of verses that everybody should have memorized. Verses that are good to have in your arsenal when you're tempted to be anxious, uh, when you're tempted to, to have a lack of self-control. These are God's promises that he gives us, that he's with us, that we can cast our cares on him, that he's there for us. So that's number five. And then number six, get help. Get help. We have got to have trusted friends that are on this journey with us. We can't do it alone. Christianity is a team sport. I meet with a couple of guys every single week, and we are very upfront with each other, with our struggles, with our sins. We're called the scriptures to confess our sins to each other. And you have to have an each other in order to do that. I love what it says in Ecclesiastes 4, 9, and 10. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fail, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. We need to get help. We can't do it alone. None of us can. And then finally, I'm sorry, that was number six. So how do then do we do this? You overcome these respectable sins. Use these help, what I'm calling the helpful six. These six, these six ideas, these six directions in helping us overcome these quote-unquote respectable sins. And in closing, I want to share with you something from a Puritan pastor named John Owen. Uh, John Owen was a, a tremendous theologian. I've got a lot of his books on my shelf. He wrote one book called The Mortification of Sin. The word mortify means to kill something, to deaden something, to render something useless. And in regard to this idea, in, in, in this book, The Mortification of Sin, he says this. He said, do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Please pray with me. God, we are all working our way through life in a fallen, broken world. Holy Spirit, we need your help. And God, we need the help of our brothers and sisters as we seek to get through this life, Lord, mortifying, killing the sins that we so easily dismiss in our own lives. God, the gossip, the envy, the covetousness, Lord, that I know I struggle with from time to time. Lord, help us in this endeavor. At the same time, we trust that you are making us into a creature that we can never be on our own. We thank you for this. It's in the holy and precious name of Jesus we pray.